Today's scripture reading will be Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, it is truly a blessing <clears throat> to be able to be with you this morning. I appreciate your presence, and God has blessed us here at White Oak. We're looking good. We're headed in a good direction, and I'm thankful for that. It is so good to see Brother Ronnie Brewer. I was out the last time he was able to come, and so this is my first time with him being able to be here. Glad to see Gary and, and Linda. It's just good to be here. I see Wayman snuck in here. He's feeling well enough to come in for a few minutes. Let's be praying for him as, as he is getting ready for an upcoming surgery, hopefully. But God's blessed us, and let's be thankful to Him. As we read through the text of the Bible, <clears throat> we see a common thread. And that common thread that we see is compassion. From the beginning... Until the end, we see God's compassion for mankind. We see His compassion for the creation. We see His great love for us in the gifts that He has provided for us and the things that He has given to us. The great leader Nehemiah was a man of compassion. He's a great example of that, of God's people being compassionate. I want us to notice what Alan Redpath wrote about him. Alan Redpath said, You never lighten the load unless first you have felt the pressures in your own soul. He said, You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. He said, Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he wept over the ruins. That's compassion. That's a great love for God Himself. It was a great love Nehemiah showed for the people of Israel. And it was compassion in that they had uh, not been following God properly and they needed to come out of their sin. But all the great followers of God have shown compassion from the very beginning of time all the way down until the modern era. We see Adam, we see Noah, Abraham, we see Israel, we see all of the twelve sons that came after him, David, the apostles, all great men and women of God have compassion. But where do you think they learned that? Where did they learn to be compassionate? Notice what Christ lamented. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. All people who learn compassion learn it from God. 
Because God has shown passion. The chief shepherd taught all of us to love and to have compassion, and we learned that in not a greater place than the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm declares to us the great love and care that God has for us. If we could determine the most popular, most memorized verses of the Bible, these words spoken by David would surely be among them. For more than 3,000 years, this psalm has encouraged those who have lost loved ones. It has instructed those who were facing life's struggles. And it has inspired those who were coming to the end of their days on this earth. Which of us have not heard these words spoken in solemn, low tones by a minister standing next to a freshly dug grave? I've heard it often, and I know you have too. But what is it about this psalm that touches the heart of almost every individual? What is it about this psalm that makes the non-religious, the non-Christian, even them to recognize that it is one of the greatest passages ever penned in the history of man. I believe it is the compassion. I believe it's the love that comes forth causing us to recognize that God, the great Creator, cares about us as individuals. I think we see it in this great psalm. Sometimes it is very easy to become discouraged and drift from the sight of God. Sometimes it is very easy to forget who brought us through the trying times. But see, we don't want to do that. We don't want to forget those things. As we study this beloved psalm for a few moments this morning, I want us to listen to the words. I want us to break down the thoughts that have been presented to us. And this morning we're going to start with the writer's, David's, personal affirmation. The great King David considered God, even during trying times. And David had some trying times. Pagan nations surrounded Israel. They surrounded Israel. They were a thorn in the side of Israel. And they had nearly as many idol gods as they had nations. It was rampant with idolatry. The worshipers of Molech sacrificed their own children to their God. Leviticus 22 through 5. Baal worshippers incorporated sexual immoralities in their worship to their God, Numbers 25, 1 through 2. Then you had those who worshipped Asherah, Beelzebub, the sun and the moon and the hundreds of other gods who incorporated these lascivious and lewd practices in worship to their gods. But none of those gods were gods at all, were they? They were simply the result of the evil imaginations of the people. Remember what God told Noah? Genesis 8, 21, He said, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, meaning as soon as he's able to learn anything, he learns to sin. That's the truth, isn't it? In contrast to those false gods, the God of heaven stood by David. The God of heaven directed David. The God of heaven comforted David. The God of heaven provided for David and He guided him in the way that he ought to go. And our God will continue to do that for us if we allow it. 
He's not the figment of someone's imagination. He is the true living God, the creator of all that we see and know. Those idol gods that surrounded the nation of Israel, they were formed from silver and gold and wood and and bronze and things of that nature. They had to be created. I want us to notice something about them. They had hands, yet they could not lift anything. They had legs, yet they could not walk. They had to be carried everywhere they went. They had mouths, yet they could not speak. They had eyes, but they could not see what was going on in the very presence where they were placed. And they certainly could not see into the future. They were simply the product of a man somewhere. Many years ago, on my first trip to India, I was in southern India, and it is a land wholly given to idolatry. They're Hindus. They have thousands and thousands of gods that they worship, and they have temples all over the land. And I happened to be standing next to this one particular temple, and they come in various sizes. They could be as big as this building and larger, or they could be as small as a, as a small box. Well, I happened to be standing next to this temple and within the temple there was their God, that particular God and he was closed in with a gate. He had bars in front of him. Well I began to look at this scenario and I was preaching and I began to ask the people, I said, what's your God doing in there? They didn't have an answer for that. They would come and offer sacrifice to that God, they would burn incense, they did all sorts of things. I said, what are the bars for? I said, is that to protect your God from being stolen? which is exactly what it was for. Or was it to trap your God in there to keep Him from fleeing from you? Either way, He's not very powerful. Now, the tops of this temple was very ornate. They had carvings of many of their gods, their their main gods. They had carvings. And and I asked them, I said, that's a beautiful carving. How did that get there? Well, some man carved it out of wood and, and it was placed up there. I said, do you ever see these idols, your gods, talking to one another? They have mouths but they can't speak. I said, do you ever see them walking around up there, interacting with one another? They have legs, yet they cannot walk. Do they recognize you as you bow down before them? They've got eyes, but they can't see you. That's all an idol is. It's nothing. It's wood. It's no different from this pulpit. It's no different from our pews. It is the creation creating something and calling it God. God doesn't need to be carried because He's the one who carries His people, right? I want us to notice Isaiah demonstrated that in, in this passage, Isaiah 46, 1 through 9. He said, Baal boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. He said, you had to carry them around. They couldn't go anywhere on their own. He continues to say, they bear Him upon their shoulder. They carry Him. They set Him in a place. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need anything from us. Wasn't that what the the crux of Acts 17 was? When when Paul was standing on Mars Hill, he said, Don't think God dwells in temples made by the hands of men. He said, God doesn't need anything from us. God is the caretaker. Don't we see that in Psalm 23? God is the caretaker. We see that David considered God, and because he considered God, He made a commitment to His Lord. We often read of those who 
whose mental assent that there is a God never translated into faithful obedience. Personal action. James wrote about the devils, didn't he? He said, you believe in one God, thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. Hey, those spirits of departed men who had gone on and and were in the Hadean realm or at the time of the miraculous sometimes were allowed to remain on this earth and inhabit the bodies of other people during the miraculous age. They understood who God was. We see in the account when Jesus cast the spirits out of... uh, the man, and he, and he put them in the herd of swine. What did the spirits ask him? You've come to punish us before our time. They knew who Jesus was. How much did that faith help them? It helped them zero. John wrote about Jewish rulers who, who believed in Christ, but because of their fear of the chief Jews, they would not recognize and confess Him. They believed in Jesus, and they believed who He said He was. John twelve forty two. There are many people today who hope that a mental ascent will get them to heaven. That's not going to work. We need more than a mental ascent. We don't see that David believed that. David's actions proved that he had faithful obedience. And Jesus taught the same thing. Notice what He said in Matthew 7, 21. He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but... He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Let's notice the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Did he have a mental assent that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Absolutely he did. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Why did he say that? Because he wanted to obey the teachings of Philip. Philip said, taught him who Jesus was. He he says earlier in that chapter, he began at that same place in Isaiah And he taught him Jesus. And so whatever that entailed, it entailed making the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and it entailed going down into the water and being baptized. We see faithful, working obedience. Not a mental ascent. But he didn't stop at just the mental ascent, did he? He fulfilled the commandment of Christ, Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's exactly the same thing that Peter taught. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Those people said, what can we do to have our sins forgiven? He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Without faithful obedience to the gospel, there is no salvation. But we can have salvation. If we consider God, we make a commitment to Him, we can also have a connection to Him. And we can be saved. By using the term shepherd in this psalm, David was recognizing and conveying some very important ideas, some ideals. He realized, first of all, that he belonged to God. He did not belong to himself. He recognized that he was not the leader. He was the follower. God is the leader. Right? He recognized that. Sheep follow their shepherd, don't they? Sheep don't lead the shepherd. They simply obey. They follow His direction. Have you ever noticed that... Now, I was never around to herd a sheep much in my life till I went overseas. And it is... There are shepherds all over India. I didn't see very many in Indonesia. But you can see a shepherd walking up the side of the road or in the road, and he may have 20 goats behind him or sheep. And they're following right along. And he'll turn around and he'll say something. 
And they'll stop, they'll move over, they get out of the way of the car. They follow the shepherd. Not one time did I ever see a sheep or a goat say, now wait a minute, I like this other direction better. Sheep don't do that. Why? They're dumb animals. They have to be led. Also, I want us to know shepherds mark their sheep. They know who their sheep are. There are shepherds today in the modern world. They mark their sheep. They have a very specialized knife that they will mark their sheep. It'd be an ear, maybe some other part of the body. They'll mark their sheep. They have a very specific mark. It's just like a brand. They know who their sheep are, and guess what? Their sheep know who they are. They keep up with their sheep. They're very concerned with their sheep. What's the difference between physical shepherds and the shepherd? He didn't mark us, did he? You ever thought about that? He didn't mark us to show ownership. He marked himself. He marked himself. Think about that. He marked himself. He chose to be marked. He wore the marks of the scourging. He wore the marks of the crown of thorns. He wore the marks of the nails in his hands and in his feet. He wore the mark of the sword that cut deep into his side, up into his heart cavity where blood and water ran forth. He wore those marks. We didn't have to. That's the difference between the shepherd and a shepherd. But we still wear a mark. You just can't see it. What's the mark that his sheep wear? It's our life. It's the life that we live. We bear that mark. We wear the mark of obedience and love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. John thirteen thirty five. He's our shepherd and we're his sheep because of his great love for us. Because of his, his great compassion for us. And people can recognize that. How? By our love for one another. When we read the 23rd Psalm, we can clearly see the personal affirmation of David, recognizing that his God, his Lord is his shepherd. His shepherd cares for him. He takes care of him. He is his shepherd. Let's notice our second point. Not only does he make a personal affirmation, he goes on into the psalm and he gives the provisional explanation of what exactly God does do for us. Our shepherd rescues us from dangers. Our chief shepherd rescues us from sin. A shepherd watches over his sheep. No shepherd worth anything would ever place his sheep in a position of danger. He loves his sheep. They have a relationship with one another. You know that sheep are in reality some of the most useless animals in the world as far as taking care of themselves. They're just dumb animals. They're they're at the bottom of the list on being able to really do anything for themselves. Have you ever wondered why God chose to call us sheep? Because we have to have help. We have to be led. We can't do anything on our own when it comes to our salvation. God has to offer that to us and then we have to accept it. Sheep don't know how to, they do not know how to get to good pastures. 
they will drink from a mud hole when clean, clear water is running two feet from them. They don't get it. They have to be guided. If we were to look out into a field where sheep were lying and they were laying around, they were enjoying the sun, that tells us something. That tells us that a sheep is being cared for. They're not worrying about anything. They're not upset. They're not looking around. They're not making noise. They're just kind of enjoying the day. They don't have any predatory dangers. It means that that they're well fed. They're well provided for. They have no desire to be anywhere else. They're not trying to escape and get away. That's the picture that, that David painted here when he said, I shall not want. God gives us all that we need. Gives us all that we ought to have. And because of his love and compassion and diligent care, David realized there was nowhere else he would rather be than in the security of the chief shepherd. Now that doesn't indicate that David's physical life was one of complete ease. Notice his history. David fought with the Philistines, fled from the presence of Saul, fled from his own son who sought to kill him and and rend the kingdom from his very hand. His son did that. And Satan, of course, always ever present, trying to throw a roadblock up in David's way. He fought and killed giants. He fought a bear and a, and a lion with his bare hands. He slew tens of thousands. He didn't have a life of ease. That's not what this is talking about. But he still enjoyed the chief shepherd caring for him. And he enjoyed a reliance upon the chief shepherd. Sheep are completely dependent upon the shepherd for the necessities of life. Isn't that what David says? He says, He maketh me to lie down and leads me beside still waters. Sheep need food and water. They need a proper place to live. A sheep is easily scared. They won't drink from a swiftly running stream. It has to be quiet. It has to be still waters. They need to know where to lay down. They have to have a place of security. That's what sheep need. Left to themselves, you know what a sheep will do? A sheep will ruin a pasture. Even to the point where it cannot be used for years to come. They'll eat everything in the pasture. They have to be moved from one pasture to the other pasture. The shepherd had to arrange his schedule around the the calendar, so to speak. Cold weather, wet weather, growth of grass, seasons. You move from one pasture to the other pasture. Because you don't want to ruin what you've got? If he were not diligent, his sheep would thirst. They would go hungry. They would be attacked by predators. And eventually they would just simply die. David recognized, just as we should, his dependence upon God. He called him the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He watches over me. He cares for me. He gives me all that I need to have. Do we see that reliance? Do I have that reliance? I better have it. Because as a sheep, I can't get from one point to the other without Him leading me. Without Him directing my steps. He knew God would care for him. He understood that God had a plan for him and his well-being. He understood that about God, that He was His shepherd. But I want us to notice that His 
care, His provision was not just simply one of reliance, it was also one of restoration. Sheep have to often be restored. Through no fault of the diligent shepherd, sheep will find themselves in trouble from time to time. They wander away. They become harassed by outside circumstances. They don't know which way to go. They allow their attention to be taken off what is important and onto something else. A sheep will pick this spot of grass. It'll step forward, pick the next spot of grass, and eventually it'll just fall right over the cliff. It's not paying attention to anything around it. All it knows is what's right before its face. The shepherd has to watch that. The shepherd has to restore his sheep sometimes. They can become lost. They have to be restored. Those same troubles can cause people to be discouraged, to be depressed, to feel lonely, to feel like there's no one in the world caring for them, but the shepherd cares. He can restore. A sheep can become what is known as cast down. Now what that is, is a sheep will be wandering around, not paying attention to what it's doing, and it will lose its balance. And if it falls over and ends up on its back, it's just as bad as a turtle. It cannot get off of its back. It will be laying there with its feet sticking straight up in the air, crying for help. It cannot do anything. And that is especially dangerous now because... Aside from just being a dumb animal, now it can't even run away from danger. It can't get away from a scary noise or something that frightens it. It is simply laying there. And if it's in the summertime, it becomes especially dangerous. As it eats and as it digests its food, uh, gases build up in the blood, prevents proper circulation, the sheep will die within a few short hours if it is cast down. So the shepherd has to watch for that, has to restore that sheep. Hey, guess what? We can become cast down sometimes. We can lose our balance. We can lose our way. We can end up on the ground and we're on our backs and we can't get up. And if we think we can overcome on our own, we simply will just die spiritually. Because we can't overcome on our own. We won't be able to get out of danger. And we need help from the Good Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, our Shepherd. We need Him to restore us if we're going to make our eternal goal of a heaven. We have to have that. But if like David, we make a personal affirmation, we understand this provisional explanation, we can enjoy the promised consolation. It's all right there for us. It's right there for the taking. Why is this inspired poem so special to people? I think it is because the love demonstrated in it shows that we have God's protection. We can be assured that God will never leave us and He will never forsake us. Hebrews 13.5 As the shepherd guided his flock from one pastor to the other, often they would have to go up on the mountaintop or come down from the mountaintop. They would go through dangerous areas. They would walk through dark valleys. They would be subject to avalanche. They would be subject to wild animals, difficult footing as they walked the paths in violent storms on their journey. You know what that sounds like to me? 
That sounds like our lives. That sounds like having difficult footing going through a trial. That sounds like going through a storm of this life and we don't really know where to get out of the rain, right? A sheep won't get out of the rain. It'll simply lay there, allow its wool to become soaked with water and then it becomes extremely heavy and it can't go anywhere. Have you ever heard the term? My, my great-granny used to say this term all the time, talking to someone who was a little bit lacking in certain areas. Said they don't even have enough sense to get out of the rain. That's a sheep. That's a sheep, right? I've learned not to use terms like that. I've overcome that. But my granny used to say it all the time. But that's a sheep. A sheep can't get out of the rain. When the shepherd is in the field, if he's going to have protection, if he's going to be able to restore his sheep when they are in trouble, he has to have some very specialized tools and equipment. There is nothing that can replace the rod. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know what the rod is? From the time a shepherd boy began to care for his father's sheep, he had chosen himself a rod. A rod was a young sapling tree carved into much like the shape of a baseball bat and about the same size. That young shepherd boy would become adept at throwing that rod and being able to hit an animal with the end of it right between the eyes. They would protect that sheep. But they would use the rod on the sheep itself. If a sheep was trying to get out of the way and go somewhere it wasn't supposed to do, uh, supposed to go, that young shepherd boy or, or whoever it was would take that rod and strike that sheep. They didn't beat the sheep to death. Didn't maim the sheep where it couldn't walk, but it would strike that sheep to get it back over where it needed to go. Why did he strike the sheep with the rod? Because he loves the sheep. He wants the sheep to be out of danger. Don't we do that much with training our own children? Solomon said, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Hey, I'm a believer in that. I believe in using that rod. I I didn't have to use the rod very much with my children. I'm thankful for that. But they did have to have it some, and one in particular. Yeah, she's here with us. What about the staff? The staff was a very peculiar piece of equipment that only a shepherd used. It was a staff. It had a crook on the end of it. It was used in the care and the management of the sheep. A ewe would would have a a lamb and and sometimes they would become separated and the shepherd would take that staff and put that crook around it lovingly bring it back over to his mama. He would take the staff and he would lead the sheep to him so he could look at them and check them over and care for them whether old or young. A sheep might fall down into a crevice and he would take that staff and he would restore that sheep. He protected it. Protected the sheep. That's what the shepherd does. Does he do that for us? We see all of those attributes in our shepherd, don't we? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The shepherd protects us, but he also provides for us. David said, My cup runneth over. When did he write this? He was running for his life from his son. But my cup runneth over. Truly in the presence of his enemies, God did provide for that man of God. 
A shepherd had to prepare the sheep's table. David talks about that in the psalm. Why did he have to provide the table? What's he talking about? He would go out into the pasture and a shepherd had to be very dedicated and diligent because the sheep will eat whatever's in front of it. And there may be poisonous plants and they'll begin to eat those. So he had to go out and he had to look through that pasture. Can you imagine that? And make sure there was no single thing out there that would harm his sheep. He provides a table before his enemies. That's what he's talking about. That's dedication. He does that. Our earthly shepherds, the elders of congregations, for those who have them, the leadership of a congregation without them, they do the exact same things. I want us to notice what Paul told the Ephesian elders. He said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. Acts 20, 28. It is the responsibility of leadership to feed the church. And make sure that they have proper food. Not something poisonous. Not some false doctrine that causes us to lose our souls. We have to be ever watchful for that, don't we? We have to have a proper spiritual diet. And we've been given that. We've been provided a way of escape. We've been given those things that God needs us as He shelters us from the dangers of sin. If we'll let Him do it. Now if we refuse the protection and the provision... We can't be saved. We've, we've not allowed God to do His part. He's done His part. He offered the sacrifice, the perfect one. All we have to do is accept it. And that is accomplished through obedience to His commandments. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. Is it too hard for us to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I don't think that's too hard for us to say that. Is it too difficult in this life to say, I'm going to repent of things in my life that do not coincide with what God taught? Look, that's not too difficult to do that. Most people I have ever studied the Bible with had no outstanding moral difficulties in their lives that they truly had to overcome. Some have, okay? And sometimes that's a little more difficult. But most people live a clean moral life that I've studied with. They simply were not being in obedience to what the Bible says. Can we, can we say I'll repent? Can I say I believe Jesus is the Son of God? Can I understand that He has provided a way for me to come into contact with His shed blood? Romans 6, 3 and 4 says we're buried with Him in baptism. We walk in the light. 1 John 1, verse 17. When we walk in the light, His blood continually cleanses us. But we have to come into contact with it first. We do that through baptism. Baptism washes our sins away. A lot of people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A lot of people believe that there is a God in heaven. But we've read about some of those people in the Bible that did not allow that belief to translate into obedient action. Faith, repentance, confession... Baptism, faithful living. Look, that's not hard, is it? We can do that. King David could honestly say that the Lord was his shepherd and his master. Can we do that? We better be able to, right? We see his great faith in his concluding words to this so-loved psalm. He said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How comforting is that? That's priceless. We have to strive to be able to say, not only we followed the shepherd through green pastures, but we also followed him through dark valleys, through the shadow, because of our faithfulness to him. If he's not your shepherd today, make make those changes. Obey the gospel plan of salvation, not because I say that's what it is, but because it can be demonstrated in the Bible. Never take anyone's word for it. What I say doesn't matter. Unless I'm repeating what the Bible says. And I can show you the plan of salvation. What about those of us who have obeyed the gospel and let we've kind of gone astray? We're like sheep. We kind of get distracted and we move out. We need to be restored. Well, the shepherd can restore us through repentance, confession of sin, through prayer, whether publicly or privately, depending on the sin. And look, we're right back in the flock again. And when that happens, the angels of heaven rejoice because we've come back to the Lord. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation this morning, don't hesitate in doing that. Come forward and let that be known as we stand and as we sing.